Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. An initial diagnosis of cancer can be devastating and frightening. One would imagine that joy is the emotion if treatments are successful and he or she is told they're cancer-free. But then there's always a thought that the cancer could return. A unique anti-cancer program is being offered starting next week by Capital Blue Cross for cancer survivors. The 12-week program is designed to reduce the risk of a reoccurrence. To tell us about it is Kelly Brennan, Director of Health Education and Training for Genia, a subsidiary of Capital Blue Cross, and Mara Carball, a cancer survivor who went through this program. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about this, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And, of course, our disclaimer, anyone who has listened to the program on a regular basis realizes that uh, Capital Blue Cross is a supporter of Smart Talk. So uh, we want to put that out there for you as well. All right, uh, Kelly Brennan, let me start with you. A class just for cancer survivors. Why is something like this needed? You know, something like this is needed because um, a cancer diagnosis is unique for a lot of people, and um, people with cancer are living a lot longer than they used to, so they want healthy lifestyle choices and to understand what they can do to greatly lower their chance of having a recurrence of cancer. Yeah, you know, what I think of when you describe that is that it used to be, and I don't know when this stopped, but it used to be. Yeah, 30, 40 years ago, you heard the word cancer. People thought, all right, death sentence. That's there's, right. There's nothing I can do. Right. And that is not the case today. That's not the case today. I mean, there's a lot of medical advances that have really helped people. So we want this program was really developed to help people after their cancer treatment as to what's next. You know, what can I do next to reduce the chance of the, ever getting this diagnosis again? Mm-hmm. And as I described it in the open, I said that uh, this is unique. It is unique. Uh, I also heard it described as groundbreaking, yep. uh, one of only two places uh, here in uh, in Harrisburg on the entire East Coast where this course is being offered. What makes it unique? What makes it unique is that um, I think we're starting to see a lot of health systems or cancer centers realize that different things around mindset or nutrition are important for cancer survivors. So you see them popping up. You know, there's a yoga class for cancer survivors or a meditation class for cancer survivors. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only comprehensive educational course that covers all the major facets of lifestyle change. So we talk about diet, environment, mindset, and exercise. Mm -hmm. One of the key words you just used, lifestyle change. I mean, lifestyle, that's that's more than just, all right, what am I going to do today? That is changing your entire life. You know, it is. I mean, we, we teach the material and let the participants choose what they're willing to change or what they want to change. Our hope is that they change uh, uh, something in every one of the categories to get the most optimal impact from the program. You know, one of the things that struck me uh, when I first heard about this and learned about it is that even though this is strictly for cancer survivors. Correct. Many of the lessons, most of the lessons, in fact, uh, from what I understand, could be applied to those living everyday lives who just want to live a healthy lifestyle. That That's absolutely true. In fact, the, the course is really around anti-inflammation. And a lot of people have heard about anti-inflammatory foods um, or anti-inflammatory exercises. But this is really a course that um, can be shared with the masses. And we're working on that now and doing more of a preventive program. The unique part of offering this for cancer 
cancer survivors, though, is that cancer is the great normalizer. So when you put people in the room who've all had similar experiences, there's a lot of support that comes with that, with the course as well. But we are looking at ways to do preventive courses. And there are three maintenance sessions after the 12 weeks that participants can bring their spouses or caregivers or family and friends to. So for those out there who are not cancer survivors, uh, you know, take take some notes today because there's some good information here for just living a healthy lifestyle. Mark Carball, Carball let me go to you now. Um, you are a cancer survivor. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, let's go back to your initial diagnosis, though. Take me back to that time. Well, it was actually uh, was found on a routine mammogram. Um, and I was initially diagnosed as a stage one, which... Breast cancer. Breast cancer, mm -hmm. um, which really, really rapidly changed into a stage three. Um, so I had some complications and things. So um, from the time I was diagnosed, it was November of 2014. And within a month, I had the first surgery. And then I had a second surgery um, within a few weeks after that. Then it was onward and upward to chemotherapy and then radiation. So I had the whole gamut. And, so, and also oral chemotherapy for the next 10 years. So going back to that initial, that initial uh, diagnosis, what was your mindset? What, was, uh, what kind of thoughts were going through your head? Oh, God, it was terrifying. I mean, because, you know, you really you go on through your daily life and you hear these things. But until it touches you or somebody that you love closely, um, you, you really aren't uh, processing it. Um, so, it, you know, there was a lot of... Fear. There was a lot of information to have to take in in a very short period of time because, you know, you, thankfully nowadays, you're part of your um, process of, of dealing with um, medical issues. You know, it used to be that the doctor would just tell you, here's what you need to do. Well, now they lay everything out in front of you and tell you, you know, the ins and the outs of everything. So, you know, you have to try to digest that and make decisions that you think are going to be best for you. Um so it, it was just so much to deal with. Were you scared? Oh, I was terrified. Mm. So, I mean, going to a mammogram, and I, I, I have never had a mammogram, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, when you go to have a mammogram, I mean, does the thought ever cross your mind that uh, something will show up? Sometimes, I guess, but you really kind of, honestly, it's, it's one of those things that's out there, but you don't. It doesn't really become real until it's real. And see, that's what I was getting at, is that uh, even though many of us have thought about, okay, what if I was diagnosed with cancer? What would my uh, thought process be? How would I feel about it? And then, but what you're saying, and I can understand it completely, is that until you actually hear that diagnosis, you, you can't, you really can't experience it. Yeah. And then, you, you know, you go through stages where you have to deal with it and... You know, you just have to really get a grip, and you have to be as positive as you can because, I mean, let's face it, it's a lot to deal with, and, you know. Okay, you say you have to be positive, and I've heard that often, but how do you stay positive when you're going through surgeries, when you're going through chemotherapy, when you're going through radiation, none of which is pleasant? Well, I'm just the type of person that their glass is half full rather than half empty, so... That was a plus for me. But when you look at all the people who are helping you and the things that are being done for you and the folks that just come out, like at work, 
people were so supportive and you know it really makes you grateful I, I tell you what I, I got much more out of having the cancer than it ever took from me and that's that's truth I mean you know you really realize how good things are and things that you've taken for granted and it, it just puts a whole new um, spin on everything not something that uh, you want to experience, but uh, I mean, you know, I've never heard people say that. I've, you're the first person I've ever heard say that that mm. uh, you got more out of cancer than you did without it. Yeah. It, it, okay. Never want to do it again. No, you never want to do it again. Me. But <laughs> I completely understand. But uh, so many people, and and this is one of the things that does happen in our society. That uh, and this probably goes back to that fear of cancer and the potential for. Uh, you know, or longevity, mm. that uh, people, they have a they have a soft spot in their hearts for cancer and for those who yes. are undergoing what, what you had to go through. You are cancer-free now, though, right? I am. Well, congratulations Thank again. Thank you very much, yeah. So um, far, so good. You know, you, every, every checkup, though, and every office visit, you know, you kind of hold your breath for a few minutes, and then it's okay. When were you told that uh, you were cancer-free? Well, actually, you know, the the thing is pretty much after you have your surgeries and as long as they the, the reason I had to have the second surgery was they had to go in and get uh, clear margins they didn't have it quite all um, so they pretty much designate that you're cancer free when the cancer has been taken out of your system but you, you never really know and that's why you have to do the chemotherapies and some people have radiation I mean everybody's um, journey through this is different, and everybody's body's different, and everybody's cancer is different. So, they really do try to tailor um, your program to suit and and to meet every expectation um, that that there is for your recovery. Um, so it's it's really it's really very strange. Mm. Um, but was there a time when, in your mind, it was like, okay, I don't have cancer anymore. I am really happy. But then the thought turned to, what could I do to keep this from coming back? Honestly, for me, even though I realize the condition now, and it, you never really know. So it's always there in the back of your mind, which may be a good thing, because then that kind of precipitates a better lifestyle, and you, know, you don't tend to do things that you shouldn't do and eat things that you shouldn't eat. But... Um, I have never, even though I'm cancer-free, I don't really feel totally at sure. ease with that. Yes, mm -hmm. because, you know, there could be something in your system or whatever, and you don't know about it. But you can't live that way. Mm -hmm. You have to go on, and you have to do the best that you can, and just be wary and do what you can do. So you went through this anti-cancer course. Yes. What did you get out of it? Oh, my gosh. I got so much out of this course, and I mean, to eat, I can't even begin to tell you. Um, first of all, the thing is the control. When you get a cancer diagnosis like that, you feel like you've lost total control of your life, and, and in essence, you basically have, um, with respect that you um, still have, you know, decisions to make on your health care and that kind of thing, but you still feel like you don't have the control because you're not the knowledgeable person. So you have to take all this information and try to do what you can with it. So you lose control over that. You lose control because you, you systematically lose control. I mean, when you go through chemotherapy, 
it's just, you know, it's just a very hard thing to do and to try to normalize your life while you're going through something like that. Um, normalcy is a very important thing to help with the control issue, too, because if you can get a little bit of normalcy, I worked while I was going through my treatments, um, and it was difficult, but it was a help because it was some form of normalcy. It was something that I had a little bit of control over. This program gave me control in so many ways. You know, you learn what you can do in respect to nutrition so that, you know, you won't have the recurrence, the exercise, the mindfulness, everything that this program is built on um, gave me some control back. And and some of it was a little bit frightening because you also realize things that you can't control, like environmental types of things, and, and but it also teaches you what you can control, and then you make the decision on, yeah, I think I can do this. I think that's going to work for me. No, I can't do that because I can't give this up. You know, it, you really can tailor it. You take everything that's in that program, but you can tailor it to yourself, and it's an ongoing learning experience. You take everything that you've learned. You take the materials that they give you. I still have everything. I still reference it. I go out to the um, Internet. I go on the websites, and I look for things. You know, if I'm going to buy something in particular, I'll check things out first. Um, so that's something that is useful. That'll be useful for the rest of my life. Mm. Kelly Brennan, what uh, Mara just described there, and I said this to you beforehand, uh, I mean, there are four focuses in the course, but that mindset seems Mm -hmm. to be very, very important that uh, you have to have a certain mindset. I say you have to. I've heard it many times from cancer survivors, from those who treat cancer patients, that uh, you have to have a good attitude, that you have to be thinking, how important is mindset? Yeah, the mindset piece is very, very important. And um, we spent two sessions just talking about mindset and practicing different techniques to help people relax and calm down. Um, I think all of us were all in a busy world. We have a lot of devices at all times. So we teach people about the benefit of just being present and paying attention to things that are in front of you. And what we're trying to do is keep people from feeling hopeless and fearful on a persistent basis. That's when the problem comes in. We all have ups and downs, and that's going to be for the rest of our lives. But the goal here is is to really get people to learn to... um, I want to say manage stress. It's more being resilient to the stress that comes along. Like Mara just talked about, yeah, there's ups and downs, but uh, she was um, wise enough to see even the cancer diagnosis brought about some good things for her. And so that's the focus. It's really teaching you to see some of those positive aspects, but when there are downtimes, to be able to bounce back from them. Well, give me a little hint here, or our audience a little hint. Of yes. What are some of the ways to do that? You know, some of the things that we teach in the class, I mean, we definitely talk about meditation, which um, sometimes can frighten people, but we don't, we just talk about that there have been benefits of meditation. Where we go is taking five minutes in the class and having them do some deep breathing. And a lot of participants have said then when they're in stressful situations, whether it's stuck in traffic or, 
you know, a fight with a spouse, they're able to sit down, take those five minutes and just breathe and focus on breathing and not anything else. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about a unique course being offered. It's a 12-week course for cancer survivors being offered by uh, Capital Blue Cross, one of only two in, on the entire East Coast where this is being offered. Our guest today, Kelly Brennan, is the Director of Health Education Training with Genia, a subsidiary of Capital Blue Cross. And Mara Carball is a cancer survivor who went through this program and raves about it, as you just heard. If you have a question or comment, one 800 729 Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. For more on cancer and healthy lifestyles, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Now, uh, Kelly Brennan, as I mentioned, there are four areas that uh, this tends to to focus on. Diet, exercise, mindset, environment. We talked a little bit about mindset, but let's talk about some of the other areas as well. As I was looking into this, uh, I saw kind of some testimonials from uh, some people who have gone through the course. And one, I think this comes under the exercise heading. They were talking about there's a lot of movement that you are moving more than you ever thought. And I'm not just talking about in the course, right. but this is something that is being invi- advised for everyday life, yes. that you are moving all the time. If you're back at work, exercises for your workstation, walking, taking it up a notch to a, to another level. Talk about why that is so important. You know, it's so important for a number of reasons. One, exercise does um, have an anti-inflammatory process, and cancer is one inflammation disease, but there's others. So exercise in general is just a good thing for many of us to do. Helps with rates of obesity. Um, you know, it really does help with a lot of things. The The focus for the course is really find a movement or an exercise that you enjoy. That is the key to making this a lifelong process. If you do things and go to the gym and you really don't enjoy it, you're probably not going to stick with it. So it's really important that we focus more on getting people to move um, and have them look at that as a positive. So instead of sitting at a desk all day, get up several times during the day and take a small walk. I do that, but I go, I walk to the candy machine, get a snack. <laughs> now that That's leaves, in the diet. That, yeah, that, that <laughs> turns over to the diet part. So Mara, what was the movement that uh, was your favorite that you were able to incorporate? Oh, I, you know, I incorporated a lot of things from all the different um, facets of the course, but um, I'll tell you what, I really do eat uh, a lot of organic food, Mm -hmm. um, especially particularly the meat. Now, I've cut way down on red meat, and consequently, my test numbers on my cholesterol and everything else has gone really good. See? Um, Doctors were pleased with that. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's there's different things that you can do. I often have people say to me, oh, organic, oh, that's really expensive. And I said, no, not if you eat properly and you eat in the amounts that you're supposed to eat. The organic chicken, if you eat it the way that it's supposed to be eaten, is not going to cost you really much more than the normal chicken. And the benefits that you get, you know, are just striking. So, you know, it's those types of changes some people can make. Some people choose not to. Um, 
I have chosen to do as much of that as possible. What about exercise? Uh, I'm not as good at that as what I should be. <laughs> but you know, you just admitted I, it in front of thousands yeah, of people. I, I but, know, you know that, but you know, anybody that knows me knows that. So you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I I make my best effort, but you know, I I slack a lot. You know, so. ah, you can't slack. I I know. <laughs> Listen to me. You, you can't slack. <laughs> well, I I do. I have incorporated things like even at work because I'll use the color printer that's in a different department yep. because I have to go uh-huh. the whole way over there, See, back and forth, and you know it's like little stuff like that. I helps. know. Yeah, the little stuff like that. <laughs> like my wife and I, we've been married for thirty some years, and uh, one of the big uh, arguments we have all the time, not on my part, on hers. She's got a problem with it, not me. Um, is that where I park in a parking lot. You know, I will tend to park farther away from where we're going so we can walk a little bit. Mm-hmm. She'll say, you realize there were three spots closer to the door. I say, yeah, I, I realize that. But I never park in the right mm-hmm. spot, according to her. <laughs> but it's just a little thing, and I know yep. that's one of the things that you're told most often. Yep. Yeah, it is. And again, just adding movement um, throughout your day. If you can fit in that cardiovascular exercise, wonderful. If you can't, at least try to move during the day. All right, let's take a a phone call from uh, Peggy, who is in Harrisburg. Peggy, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Can you hear hear me? We can hear you. Oh, great, because I don't always have good cell phones. (laughs) Well, if you cut out, we'll know what the problem is, but go ahead. All right, thank you. I'm a 21-year cancer survivor and uh, lots of surprises, et cetera, along the way. I had radiation, uh, total mastectomy, um, lymph nodes removed, 80% of them in my right arm, et cetera. Anyway, my question is, how do I get into this class? And we're going to provide that information, but first of all, Peggy, just as I said tomorrow, uh, earlier, congratulations and uh, 21 years. During that 21 years, are you thinking about it all the time? No. Well, that's um, good. I had a lot of life to to um, take care of in the interim. I lost my significant other about four months later uh, to an abdominal aneurysm two oh. days before I was supposed to go in for a stem cell transplant, and then 14 years later, I was surprised by a lung cancer diagnosis, which was six years ago, and it was breast cancer cells that had wandered around and decided to, to attack my lungs. And now I fight uh, metastatic bone cancer. But I get up every day, and I'm excited. My feet hit the floor, and I get going. And, um, and I discovered a long time ago that if you have a bad attitude or if you're sad and um, decide you're going to lay on the couch, um, no one is sympathetic. Um, Maybe a few people for a a short period of time, but certainly not for long. And you need to get going. (laughs) So, Peggy, you're you're still being treated today? Yes, and I will be for the rest of my life because metastatic cancer is forever, unfortunately. Well, good luck with that. And uh, I'm glad you called in and asked about the information because that's something we want to put out there. Thank you very much, and good luck. Can I just put a plug in real quick? Sure. The Cancer Coalition is having a um, their annual luncheon in the second Monday of October, Columbus Day, at the Hilton. And lots of classes are taught there to be help, uh, that will help both survivors and caregivers and professionals. Yeah, Pennsylvania. So I invite everyone to attend that 
um, and um, the registration can be gotten online through the breastcancercoalition.com. Peggy, and I'm not going to ask your age or anything like that, but you... If I'm you, 73. Okay, well, I was going to say, you were, you were pretty young when you were diagnosed. 53. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, you know, and, you know, Peggy, I'm glad that she did get that plug in for Pennsylvania Breast Cancer Coalition. Uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, we had uh, Lee Hurst for Feel Your Boobies for uh, younger women, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, they are uh, checking to make sure that uh, they don't have lumps or there's something uh, out of the ordinary. October, obviously, is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But, Big question that she asked, and we wanted to pass this information on anyway, is how can someone get involved in the in the in the course? Yeah, so the course does require pre-registration. So as we stated earlier, the class starts next Wednesday, August thirty-first. It is from five to seven thirty in the evening at the New Capital Blue Store over in Hamden Marketplace in Enola. Um, it's two and a half hours each class, and it runs through November sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a cost involved, correct? There is a cost involved. Uh, it's $120, so that roughly is $10 a week. And as part of that, you get um, the anti-cancer lifestyle book that the course is, was inspired by. You get a workbook, a pedometer, resistance bands. And then every class, we actually serve an anti-cancer meal um, to encourage people to try foods that they might not have previously. And then two of those course, or two of those classes, it's a potluck dinner. So the participants actually cook an anti-cancer way and bring food in. So there's always a meal in the 12, 12 classes. And let me uh, provide this website where there is more information. We'll put this on our website, witf.org. Capital Blue Store dot com and capital spelled with an A, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, bluestore.com. There's information about the anti-cancer class there if uh, you, you had other questions. Diet. I think yep. that probably the question that is asked most often is, all right, what foods can I eat? What foods should I avoid? And I guess I could ask that two ways. Maybe that for those who have been diagnosed, there are foods that they should avoid, foods mm-hmm. they should eat. But for those who just want to eat healthy, let's go with, uh, for you know, for, since we're talking about cancer survivors, yep. what are some of the foods that are good for them? So what we encourage, and, the, and those classes, there's three diet classes, those are taught by a registered dietitian. So what we teach in those sections is, for the most part, following a plant-based diet. But we do not tell people that they have to become a vegetarian when they're in the class. But if they're going to eat meat, we encourage them to do it as a condiment on their plate versus the main part of their plate. So a lot of fruit and vegetables. And I I don't think that's anything new to anybody. um, But that's one of the major things that we talk about. Watching added sugar intake, which can cause inflammation in the body. Um, Drinking more green tea that has been shown to have some effects on cancer. So just little things. There's even some herbs and spices that we talk to people about that have anti-inflammatory properties. What about foods to avoid? Foods to avoid... 
really the only thing that I've ever heard a dietitian say to avoid was anything with trans fats. Um, and that's for all of us, not just for people who have cancer. In general, the message is, you know, eat 80% of the time, try to do your best anti-cancer eating. If there's something that you want, 20% um, of the time, it's okay, things in moderation. But really, the focus is on plant-based whole grain foods. Mm -hmm. What about environment? I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes, and Mara kind of mentioned this, that with environment, there are a lot of things you can't control. There are a lot of things you can't control, and I think we assume that every chemical on the market is safe, and um, it may not be. So what we teach in the course is helping people to understand how to read labels and to look for certain things that maybe for their particular cancer they want to avoid, um, trying to keep their air clean whether that be from heavy fragrance. Fragrance is actually something in the United States that doesn't have to be broken down on the label. So it can be one chemical or it can be 100 chemicals. Um, so we keep your air clean, know your labels, and then really choose what you want to change um, in your life. The environmental piece has a, has a lot of information in it. Sometimes it feels a little overwhelming. But at the second time we teach that, I think the class participants feel they have a little more control over some decisions they can make about products they purchase. Mm. Uh, so the course starts uh, August 31st. Uh, again, provide that information, and we will have it on our website, WITF.org. Yep. So it starts next Wednesday, August 31st, 5 to 730, pre-registration is required so that we can touch base with you and make sure um, this is the right course for you. And it runs from August 31st to November 16th. Mm -hmm. Kelly Brennan and Mara Carball, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. College students are returning to campuses and classes across the country this week. Questions a student and their parents often ask themselves are whether they can get a job in their field of study after graduating and if their major is preparing for them for the jobs and careers of the future. The job site Indeed has researched the topic, and we're joined by Tara Sinclair, who is the chief economist for the job site Indeed. Ms. Sinclair, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. If you have a question or a comment about this list, about the jobs of the future, about college majors, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call. Or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. So, Tara Sinclair, what was the purpose of this research? Well, you know, obviously, uh, this is a big decision that uh, you know, college-headed college, college -headed kids and their, and their parents are, are discussing at this time of year, trying to determine you know, what's the right major for them. There's so many factors that go into the decision, but obviously one of them is their career prospects. And, you know, I'm concerned about students having enough labor market literacy as they're making these decisions, and so we wanted to share some information that could help you know, help them. How did you determine the best fields of study for jobs of the future? Well, we, we went about it in a, a very detailed fashion. So the first thing that we wanted to do was identify jobs that um, it looked good on the pay front, that both you know, on average had uh, fairly high pay and also that had seen 
wage growth over the last 10 years, which both suggests you know, regular raises, which people like to see from a psychological perspective, as well as that signals you know, continued employer demand in those areas. And so those are the two factors we use to first kind of identify a set of jobs that we called opportunity jobs. You know, we, we hear the description today, fabling sustaining jobs. Often we hear that from politicians. The jobs that you're talking about, though, uh, yes, they would fall under that heading as family sustaining, but that's not necessarily these. We're talking about careers. We're talking about uh, professions for the most part. We're talking about what the economy of the future of this company will need, correct? Exactly. Well, that was what was really interesting is that we identified these based on these pay factors. But then when we looked at what they correlated with in terms of employer demand, in terms of risk of automation, uh, in, in terms of you know, general sense of satisfaction based on employer, employee surveys, these jobs also performed really well on those fronts. A risk of automation. That's something that a lot of people don't think about unless maybe they're in the manufacturing sector or, uh, you know, a, a profession or a job, a career where uh, there's a possibility of a robot, a machine taking over for them. Is that that's something that has to be considered today? It definitely does. I mean, especially when you think about you know, students between 18 and 22 choosing their their major and thinking about long-term career plans that might be you know, spanning you know 30, 40 years into the future. They're uh, you're going to want to think long-term about the sorts of jobs that are likely to remain uh, in in human hands as compared to being replaced by not just robots today, but also, you know, all forms of artificial intelligence. Mm. Uh, you sent, you had a, a, a news release about uh, the research, and one of the things mm -hmm. you say in there is that a four-year college degree used to be almost a guarantee of a good-paying job, but that is not the case anymore. I think a, a lot of people have learned this the hard way, but why is that true? What we're seeing is that people really need a specialized skill set in order to be successful in today's labor market. And so even though I, I still think a college degree is incredibly important, and in fact, 75% of these opportunity jobs do require a college degree. So a college degree is, is an important piece. But you also need to be able to show how the skills that you've acquired, either in college or from internships or from other opportunities, really fit into the type of job that you want. Because these, these top jobs tend to require uh, some mix of both technical and social skills. You just said that uh, 75% uh, require a, a four-year degree. But I want to go a little bit further because, uh, you know, we've talked very often, and again, we go back to the presidential campaign and how things have changed. It used to be 20 or 30 years ago that uh, someone could graduate high school and walk into a, a good-paying job uh, in a factory or maybe even in some other industries as well. But, you know, Four years of college is, is, is not for everyone. So are we talking about college? Are we talking about additional training beyond uh, high school as almost an essential today? Yes. There's definitely an indication that some sort of skills beyond high school are, are necessary for almost all of these good-paying, um, raise-seeing jobs today. Um, and you know, so that you can get that from a number of different fronts. You can do a, a college degree that is specialized towards one of these jobs, 
or you can get the skills from a, a specialized training program. You know, coding boot camps for computer positions, for example, are, are growing in popularity. Uh, and you can do that you know, potentially directly uh, you know, with just a high school degree as a starting point. Um, but then it, it, it goes both ways. You, know, you, you need the specialized training whether you have a college degree or not. But obviously for lots of these jobs, a college degree is actually what buys you entry into that specialized training. Mm. You know, one of the things that struck me about the list of jobs of the future and the most popular majors right now is that they don't necessarily match up. Uh, for example, number one on the list of jobs of the future is computer and information sciences. I have to say that's not a big surprise for <laughs> most people. But that is only the 11th most popular major. What gives? Well, this is one of those big puzzles that I, as an economist, am regularly going around and asking other economists and other people uh, who are looking at the labor market on a regular basis and really trying to figure out what it is that's going wrong. Everybody talks about computers, 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 and programming skills and coding being so important. And yet we're really not seeing much movement in terms of young people's interest in that field. Uh, and you know, one of the key things that, that we talk with employers about regularly is really trying to develop a, a broader, more inclusive employer brand to where they can convince young people with more diversity than what is you know, that typical, stereotypical, you know, Silicon Valley personality. You know, we need to be able to widen that pool of, of, of attractiveness of that type of, of career in order to fill all these roles that are coming. You know, there's some irony there because just that uh, demographic, that age group that, uh, that you uh, described, I mean, they are so used to using technology. They're using it every five minutes in their in their lives. They know uh, their way around a computer so well, but yet uh, it's only the 11th most popular major. You would think that, uh, you know, because young people, today's young people do enjoy it, and it's such a, a, a part of their lives that um, many more of them would say, you know what, this could be a career for me. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things. So first of all, so I'm also a college professor besides uh, working with Indeed. And so I regularly ask my students that are taking economics classes, you know, why aren't they computer science majors? And it, the typical response is that they, they think that sort of, of, of work is boring. Um, and so this is where you know, we really need to find ways to make it sound more exciting to a, a broader set of young people. Um, and there is a difference between using technology and developing new technology. Uh, and, and I think there, there's a pretty big leap there. And, and maybe some students don't understand how big that leap is and the sorts of skills they actually need to be successful in those sorts of jobs. And so maybe they don't realize the importance of a computer science degree in order to gain entry into those really high-paying fields. What kind of skills? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is math. Right, right. No, math is absolutely critical here, um, as is statistics and, and being able to uh, think about the, the world in a distributional sense. Uh, but you know, also there's just this, it, there's an aspect of creativity that I think gets often lost when talking about some more of these technical fields, because it is still important. If you're trying to solve a problem, if you're trying to come up with a computer code that does something that's never been done before, that's a very creative process.
Mm. Our guest during this portion of the program is Tara Sinclair, the chief economist for the job site Indeed. And uh, we're talking about research that Indeed just put out, uh, the best fields of study and majors for jobs of the future, and then also the most popular majors in uh, today's colleges, of today's college students. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I know there are people out there, Tara, who are saying to me, Scott, just read the list, will you? So I'm going to do that. Uh, The best fields of study and majors for jobs of the future, uh, you have six listed. Computer and information sciences, number one. Engineering, number two. Architecture, number three. Fourth on the list is business management. Number five is health professionals and related programs. And number six is business finance. All right. Is there anything that sticks out to you about those six? Well, I think the key one I want to point out is the health professions, because that's really an area where so the way that these are ranked is based on the probability of if you're in one of these majors, the probability of getting one of these opportunity jobs when you're done. Um, and so all of these, there's uh, tons of employer demand and lots of opportunities, particularly relative to the number of majors. But health care is really one of those areas where it is incredibly fast-growing and also incredibly large. So there are tons of different health opportunities for people, and it's really got amazing growth trajectories. So even though, you know, in a, in a pure sense, you know, you're – most likely to get an opportunity job if you major in something like computer science, um, to have just a range of opportunities and and just the sheer number of opportunities, it's actually healthcare that's number one. Well, you see that, that, and I was going to say that the, the, the two lists don't exactly jive because of that. Uh, You have health professionals related programs as the fifth uh, ranked best field of study for jobs of the future, but amongst majors, uh, health professionals and related services is number two. So students must be catching on that there are a lot of job and career opportunities out there. They are, but that's still way too low relative to our growing healthcare needs. I mean, we, if you just think about the demographics, what we're seeing here is you know, this aging baby boomer population who has you know, completely signaled that they're going to be demanding lots and lots of very innovative health care in the future. Uh, and so even though this is you know, the second most popular field of study, uh, it's still you know, a real problem to fill the roles of today, nonetheless, the, the roles that are coming down the pipeline tomorrow. Mm. But you only have six listed. And mm-hmm. you also say, indeed, also says that uh, there's only a handful, a small segment that, uh, you know, uh, that people can be optimistic about, about uh, the, the future for these jobs. Right. And that is a, a concern, um, although they are broad categories. Right. But they are. Yeah. But it, it is definitely a concern that, you know, particularly when you're thinking about the risk of automation of jobs, for example, that you know, many types of jobs that exist today are at risk of automation. And so trying to identify jobs that do exist today that we can kind of talk about today and say these are ones that are still safe to think about for a long-term career, it's, it's a pretty small list. But that doesn't mean that there aren't all sorts of new jobs coming down the line in the future 
We just don't know exactly what they look like yet. Mm. All right, let's get down the list of the most popular fields of study. Now, this list is a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. uh, number one is business. Number two, health professions and related services. Number three, social sciences and history. Number four, psychology. Number five, biological and biomedical sciences. Number six, education. Number seven, visual and performing arts. Number eight, uh, engineering. Number nine, communication, journalism, and related programs. Number 10, homeland security, law enforcement, and firefighting. Number 11, computer and information services. And number 12, English language and literature letter. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question I did about uh, those uh, jobs of the future. What sticks out to you about that list of most popular fields of study? Well, I can only imagine that what stuck out for everybody is how long you had to go through the list before you actually said computer and information. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that is shocking, um, you know, particularly given you know, its cultural prevalence and the discussion about how you know, wonderful those roles are on so many fronts and how employers are consistently saying, you know, if, if we could hire more computer scientists, we would do it immediately, um, and, and yet they don't seem to be you know, coming out of, of universities, and and it's you know also a concern on the the gender front because we're we're not seeing young women choosing to major in, in, in computer and information services nearly as as often as young men, even though now today more young women are going to college than young men. All right, I have to tell you that the, one of them that stuck out to me was number four, psychology. Mm. I, I think we all knew, at least uh, people in my age group, uh, so many people who thought, oh, this is a fascinating uh, field of study. I'd like to be a psychologist. I'd like to work with people. But number four, psychology, that sounds like a, an awful high, a lot of psychology majors. Well, the nice thing about psychology is that it does have a range of different skills you can get while you're doing that major. Um, you know, there can be more a quantitative focus, more of a biological sciences focus, uh, and actually lots of psychology courses today use computer programs as well to simulate human behavior, et cetera. And so on that front, psychology is a very flexible major, and I think that's why a lot of people do choose to major in that is because it's interesting, and they have the possibility of getting a range of skill sets and exposure to a range of different things um, that could lead to, you know, lots of psychologists go to law school, for example, or move into a different social science for graduate school. You know, not everybody becomes a psychologist with an undergraduate psychology major. Hmm. All right, let's take some phone calls and go to Andy in Lancaster. Andy, you're on the air. See how you promote a lot of these call, all these careers that you're talking about. A lot of people take these courses. They don't come out with jobs. My son took history. He's not working in history. My daughter did psychology, but all that money didn't do it. What's wrong with even pushing? You, know, you still need electricians, and today you need to be very skilled because of all the, a little bit of computer knowledge with that. You still need plumbers. Those are the people that are actually working <laughs> mm -hmm. more than a lot of these people that have come up with debt for college and not working. I mean, it seems like you're pushing all these fancy titles. Yeah, we do need Homeland Security, but again, you're steering so many people that they're not only, only a certain percentage are actually going to make it. Mm -hmm. And then they have no skills. All right, Andy. And you don't know what to do. Thank you Thank very, you. very much for your call. He brings up a, a really good point. One that you do hear often uh, is that, you know, the, the, just the two uh, professions he uh, that he described, electricians, plumbers, that 
you, we still need people that, you know, there are not robots. There are not uh, um, automation that's going to take over for those things. What about those uh, those traits? Yeah, well, thank you, Andy, so much for bringing that up because so you know, this particular piece of research that we were talking about was specifically about college majors. But as you know, as I pointed out, 25% of these opportunity jobs that uh, we identified in a previous report do not require a college degree, but do require some kind of specialized skills, like you mentioned, like like plumbers, like electricians. And so those are great areas to go into. And I do think it's really important, particularly as we're seeing uh, some of the older generations that had those roles retiring, there's a concern that there's not going to be enough young people that are interested in those fields. And it is important to talk about, you know, even if you go and get a college degree, maybe the next step is to be a plumber or electrician, or maybe if a college degree isn't right for you, that going to a specialized school where you can get that training is a perfect next step out of high school. We have another suggestion here. Gary is in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Yep, I know we're always down the list because nobody pushes kids into farming, but if you knew some of the things that were coming in farming as far as there's a whole course now at Penn State called Agricultural Entrepreneurship, and some of the neatest you know things that... I can't even dream of some of the stuff that's coming, but, you know, you do it three times a day at least as far as eating. The foods that we want to grow today have to be healthier, and they have to be, you know, less pesticides and less, you know, chemicals. And, you know, there's just so many opportunities as far as animals. And, uh, you know, it's just it's a huge field, and unfortunately most kids are told, you know, all farmers are poor and it's a hard work and you don't want to get into that field, and it's just a shame because, there are so many farms up here that could use, you know, some younger people to kind of help grow into it. And then there's newer things that are coming, and it's just, it's just a shame. It really is. Well, Gary, I think what you just described is one of the the, the reasons is that uh, you know we do it. It does have that reputation of how uh, much of a challenge it is to make money. But you know something else you uh, and and it is hard work. But the other thing you just talked about is, uh, you know, most of today's farmers, I imagine are getting college educations. Yeah, that's not true. I mean, most of the kids, you know, it's kind of an apprentice program. It's kind of like, you know, if you can't get in anywhere else, you you become a farmer. But you are correct. In some cases, I did some work for Penn State. I was out, and there was a younger gentleman that was doing organic farming on corn and soybeans and whatever. He had two cell phones. He was driving his tractor with his elbows, making commodity trades <laughs> on his tractor <laughs> with two cell phones. Uh, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that's happening that, you know, unfortunately, like you said, it's, it, you know, they, they aren't coming out with college degrees. Nobody's going to college and then coming out and saying, well, you know, I can't do anything else with it. I'll be a farmer. Yeah. You know, yes, there are some farming schools, and yes, Penn State does have a really good agricultural department, but, you know, even they'll admit that most of the kids going to Penn State are not in agriculture, and it's a shame because it's a huge, wide-open field, and the sky is the limit because people really are starting to look at, you know, where their food is coming from, how it's being grown. Organic is a huge thing, and even just naturally grown food. Um, you know, it's just it's a shame that more kids aren't heading in that direction. But thank hey, you very much. Hey, Gary, thank you very much for your call. We only have about a minute or so left, but uh, what about that? I, I think that's great, and I, I love that Gary mentioned an apprenticeship program aspect to farming because I think that's an area where we haven't seen enough of the, the type of on-the-job training that uh, it, it, certain groups of, of young people really need. And uh, so that's exciting to hear about that in the farming field, and I think he did a, a great pitch for making that uh, a 
you know, a career that young people would find you know, satisfying and appealing. And so I, I hope a lot of people heard that. Mm. Uh, well, uh, Tara, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. We're going to put uh, both lists on our website, WITF.org. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Is, is this going to become an annual thing? Yes, I think we're definitely going to uh, we're tracking so many different jobs and so many different opportunities. It sounds like uh, next year's list, we should uh, make sure to not just talk about college majors, but other options for, uh, for young people as well. Sounds that way. Tara Sinclair is the chief economist for the job site Indeed. Tara, thank you very much for being with us. Great. Thank you, Scott. We'll talk to you tomorrow.